we don't see enough of, you know, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit has been to me has really been taken away by the reserve system where the idea is like, you know, stay on your reserve, don't try anything new, you know, live the way, uh, you know, your people lived 500 years ago, according to somebody else's history book. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of ridiculous. In Digitech season two, episode three, welcome back. I'm your host, Richard Perry. If you're new to the show, this is where I speak with indigenous business owners to hear the why and how of their personal journeys, so you can take away inspiration and tips for your own success. This week, I speak with Frank Bush, founder and CEO of Nation Fund. It's a new business that specializes in matching First Nations with private equity, debt capital, and investment strategies. Frank's career in finance has taken him from coast to coast to coast and to almost 300 First Nation communities across Canada. Now, my conversation with Frank Bush. And joining me now from West Bank First Nation in British Columbia is Frank Bush. Frank, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. We've, uh, you and I have met a couple of times at some national events and uh, out here in Nova Scotia at least once. But for those folks just meeting you for the first time in this podcast, how about a, a description of Frank Bush? Who are you and what kind of work are you doing right now? Oh, sure. Well, I'm uh, originally from the Nichisawayasi Cree Nation in northern Manitoba. I uh, spent most of my life in the, uh, I guess, accounting slash bookkeeping slash finance sector. Uh, most recently, I was with the First Nations Finance Authority for seven years before co-founding uh, Nation Fund. Uh, part of the catalyst for that was my completion of, of a postgraduate certificate in finance from the uh, from Harvard University. So I, I worked through their extension school and uh, learned a whole lot of stuff and I'm now out there applying it in the indig Indigenous community. Yeah. So growing up in northern Manitoba, what was that like? Uh, you know, it was interesting. Um, I, I grew up mainly in a small mining town called Lynn Lake, Manitoba. And uh, it was kind of my first uh, introduction to the economy when the mine shut down in 1988 and the entire town basically disappeared overnight. So about 95% of everybody who lived in the town uh, worked at the Sherrick Gold Mine. And when it closed, uh, everybody very quickly scrambled off, uh, many of them heading to places like Sault Ste. Marie and that that still had uh, nickel mining and and where they could use their skills. So uh, it was a big shock for me because it was a it was a booming kind of bustling little town growing up. And, uh, you know, everybody was pretty, um, you know, even, I guess you might say economically, you know, there was a couple wealthier families, but for the most part, everybody, you know, was, was kind of blue collar people. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of social strata. So that's kind of what I thought the world was like. And then we ended up moving down to the city of Winnipeg. And there I very quickly noticed there was a big difference between kind of the rich, the poor and the middle class. And then on to university. Did you take some business studies in your university days? No, I wish I had. Um, I actually did a, uh, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Indigenous Studies. Uh, one of my favorite courses at the time was actually like an, uh, you know, kind of an Aboriginal economics course that I took. Uh, I hadn't really been exposed to uh, economics and, and finance at all kind of growing up. Uh, but I, I always had a bit of an aptitude for numbers, but I, I, I knew I wanted to work in the Indigenous community, so I, I pursued Indigenous studies. 
And it wasn't until I got out of university that I realized uh, there weren't a whole lot of jobs out there, you know, for people who are just really good thinkers. You know, they wanted skills like things you could do. So one of the first jobs I took was as the uh, finance assistant for the Manitoba Aboriginal Sport and Recreation Council. And, uh, you know, just trying to do that job, I ended up taking some, uh, you know, bookkeeping courses uh, through correspondence uh, and started learning a bit that way. And it just led me down a path of, uh, you know, the next job, the next job, another course, another course. And uh, I ended up with uh, five certificates from the Canadian Securities Institute, you know, because it seemed to be the easiest place to learn about some finance and economics and that all, all in one go and have a piece of paper to show at the end of it. What's interesting, you talk about accounting and numbers and finance. Uh, in my experience in, in PR and communications, the numbers people, like the accounting side, sometimes, you know, their relationship building skills aren't where they might be, uh, you know, not generally perhaps, but the people I've met. And yet you're one of these rare breeds. I've seen you work a room and I've, I've seen you, <laughs> yep. I've seen you develop relationships and people who have met you and worked with you just say, you know, it's, it's been an incredible relationship. So how did, how did you marry the two, the finance and the number side and the people skills? Well, I, you know, some of my bosses over the years would probably find my kind of more extroverted tendencies pretty annoying, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody wants an accountant who likes to talk, right? So, so you don't really run across that very often. But uh, I, I was always kind of more focused on the, um, I guess, the business analytics side. So very much like diving into what is it we're doing? How can we do it better, more efficiently? Where can we save money or where can we make money in other areas? Uh, so I, I just kind of found a weird niche in between, almost like as a translator between the kind of creative kind of doer people and the backroom bean counters. So I, I was very quickly made in a lot of roles the the ambassador to the other group, you know, because I seemed to be the one who could speak both languages. And I think it came as a as a direct result of uh, you know doing an arts degree first and then learning finance and accounting afterwards. Yeah. So when did you hook up with the First Nations Finance Authority and how did that come about? Uh, so that was in 2012 and it was kind of just a, a, a bit of a weird scenario. Um, it was actually my wife was, uh, you know, working for WestJet at the time and uh, she met the president CEO, Ernie Daniels. Uh, she was uh, trying to find him a new flight. I guess he'd been bumped off of a flight with another airline and was trying to get back to, uh, to West Bank. So, um, you know, I guess he was looking for some documents and he put some, uh, you know, uh, uh, some kind of papers down that said First Nations Finance Authority on it. And she knew that what I had been doing at the time was a lot of working with First Nations groups all across Manitoba, you know, uh, tribal councils, other areas like that. And she, she asked Ernie Daniels, you know, just out of nowhere, you know, well, what, what is this First Nations Finance Authority? And he said, oh, OK, well, it's, you know, we're trying to, you know, uh, raise money on the bond market for developing First Nations. And she basically pitched me to him right then and there and said, oh, you need a guy like my husband because he knows all these First Nations people. He knows, you know, some accounting and bookkeeping and whatever. And next thing you know, I'm getting this call from my my office in Winnipeg, um, telling my wife, telling me, oh, I just met this nice man at the airport. And my first thing I said to her is, what are you doing meeting men at the airport? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then so she described, she goes, I want you to come down here and talk to this guy about how he can reach out to First Nations in Manitoba. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. And she was very adamant, like, no, no, get down here, you know, talk to this guy. And 
I said, okay. So, so when I first met Ernie Daniels, I, I really thought I was just meeting another First Nations person in the field. All, all I knew about him was that he lives in BC, he's First Nations, and he's trying to do something new. So, uh, so I came down there and I talked to him. I said, yeah, if I was to reach out to First Nations of Manitoba, this is who I talk to. These are the events I go to. This is how I'd approach it with them. And uh, so he said to me, well, you know, why do you want to move to West Bank? And I said, what? You know, like, I, I don't know what you're talking about here. What do you, I, I don't even know what that is, right? And he goes, oh, well, because, you know, I was talking to your wife. She said you guys wanted to move to BC. And I said, oh, well, you know, she's a she's a small town girl from a farm in southern Saskatchewan. It's their dream to live near the mountains one day. Right. So we kind of it was kind of a little bit awkward at that time. And so to kind of just to break the tension there, I kind of said, well, hey, you know what? Um, give me some of your brochures. I'm going up north next week. I'm going to be talking to three First Nations and, uh, you know, I'll tell them about you. You know, just to make sure he hasn't wasted his time here, right? He was waiting for a flight anyway, so it didn't really matter. But uh, so he gave me some documents. I had nothing to lose. We exchanged business cards. And a few weeks later, I got a call from him saying, you know, uh, we, we hired a guy a while back. His whole job was to bring in councils, you know, to talk about FNFA and to work through our process. He goes, um, yeah, they didn't have much luck, but you don't even work for me. And you just brought in three. Like, I want you on my team, right? So... Uh, so yeah, so we started talking. I, I did a trip out to Kelowna, went to West Bank First Nation, and just my, my eyes just bugged out of my head. There was a Walmart on the reserve, a Home Depot, Canadian Tire. If Ernie hadn't showed me what was reserve and what wasn't, I wouldn't have known. I would have just assumed I was in a wealthy city in Canada, you know, and, and it was all on reserve. So I said, okay, these guys are doing something very differently because from where I come from, you know, uh, at the time, South Indian Lake, Manitoba, you know, Nelson House, uh, you know, there was a lot of poverty. There was high unemployment, you know, things weren't going very well for us at the time. And it kind of just showed me that there was a better way where First Nations can, can, could prosper. Uh, and I really wanted to be a part of that. So, so I ended up there for seven years. Um, I know in one year I went to something like 27 conferences as a speaker. Uh, there was one week in which I presented to chief and councils in four different provinces. Uh, I, I basically went coast to coast to coast. I remember uh, touching all three oceans, <laughs> you know, in Canada, you know, just going to all these communities and really was making a major difference. And, and you know, and the First Nations Finance Authority has, has just broke a billion dollars uh, yeah. in, in, in phenomenal loans. And, uh, and obviously out east, uh, there with the Clearwater Seafoods buyout and their their uh, basically leadership in that area and partnership with Member Two and other First Nations, uh, it, it's been a real game changer. Um, so so where I saw you know where Nation Fund kind of came in is where I saw you know still still an area to be uh, explored and to be grown upon was it was not so much on the debt side as on the equity side. Because a lot of times to get a project going, you, you have to have some cash in the bank, uh, you know, before you can start that, before you can look at borrowing, before you can look at whatever else, um, you know, you need some equity investments. So that means you either have to attract uh, like an angel investor, just a wealthy individual who's who's got some, uh, you know, money and willing to throw in for a project in exchange for ownership, or you have to do an IPO. And that means going to the stock market. And the stock market is a very foreign place to First Nations people. Um, I'm on the board of directors of a publicly traded company, and it, uh, it is traded. their stock is traded in, in Canada and the U.S. So I'm a registered insider on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange. And I haven't met a lot of First Nations people who, who have that. Uh, I know, uh, you know, Oniganu uh, Christian Sinclair from uh, Opaskwet Cree Nation. Uh, his nation actually helped to launch uh, initial public offering of meta cannabis. 
Uh, and that was very groundbreaking. I think that was probably well, one of the first times a First Nation had been, you know, in a leadership role, uh, you know, involved in, a, in an IPO. Uh, so I wanted to see a lot more of that. And, um, and I think that's a, a bit of a key to success in the First Nations community uh, to be able to kind of enter that world and, and access capital that way as well. Yeah, it's interesting when you when you visit communities, uh, and we see it now on the internet. You can see some First Nations communities that have tremendous highway access, mm-hmm. uh, access to ports or access to water, and yet there are other small communities that you know back when Indian Affairs or the you know federal colonial officials at the time threw them out in some barren landscape where there was no crops, no water, and the chance for economic prosperity was basically nil. Uh, are you still seeing that or is that going to be leveled off somehow in the next couple of decades? I think a lot of progress has been made, but I think there are still major systemic barriers for First Nations development. Uh, a lot of times it does come with this idea of uh, checkerboarding, you know, the First Nations Reserve. And uh, a really good example of that and and something that that I think was a great story that not enough people have heard is with uh, Batangek Mi'kmaq Nation, uh, you know, near Anikinish. Um, they had two big parcels of land as part of the reserve, but they had no access to one of those parcels. There was no infrastructure or, or, or any way to really access it other than by foot. So in terms of economic development, it wasn't really great. However, they were able to uh, build a highway interchange to create kind of an area of economic uh, opportunity and then build that uh, Bayside Travel Center there. Uh, and, you know, and that was uh, really a very groundbreaking you know, situation, which I, which I don't think has gotten enough uh, you know, play in the media. You know, like it's, it's really, uh, I really feel like they're kind of the, the little nation that could. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, and Rose Paul, the CEO of the, uh, of, of, of the uh, Bayside um, uh, Development Corporation is just, you know, like she's just, when she gets on something, she stays on it and she's so diligent and just kind of keeps going with it. And, right. uh, and, you know, and those types of stories start to inspire First Nations. And, like she, and they in turn were actually inspired by the Asuyas Indian men. And, you know, because they started seeing like what these guys were doing kind of in a, in the desert. People always say like, oh, Asilius is successful because they had prime real estate. I'm like, you've clearly never been to Asilius. Like it is a desert. There are cactuses. There are rattlesnakes. Like it's, you know, for me, from a Cree from northern Manitoba, it's a scary place. Yeah. But they created all that. They created these wineries. They created like, you know, a golf course. infrastructure. Yeah, golf course, uh, you know, all these uh, the Spirit Ridge Resort, uh, you know, and I and I think there's certain inspiration. And, and really when... You know, traditionally, when First Nations would do something or try something new, it was because of that storytelling. You know, we had those individuals who would go around traveling, trading, and telling stories. And they would tell you of these other nations and far-off places and what they tried and what they did. And then people say, oh, we should try something like that. You know, and that was really a part of our culture. When we got into the reserve system, that was kind of locked away. And, you know, we started creating these divisions amongst ourselves that like, oh, well, just because those guys did that doesn't mean we can do it here. Or worse yet, you know, if there are is like a failure of some kind, you know, someone tries a business like a hotel or something and it doesn't work out. Uh, everybody else in the area says, oh, well, that community tried that and it didn't work out. and It was really embarrassing. So let's not do that for 20 to 30 years. You know, and it's there's so many uh, things uh, that can change. Like business is scary. Like you can go out of business very quickly. It can be, a you know, something like COVID happens that nobody was you know prepared for. Uh, and you really just have to be able to pivot and change direction and do different things, uh, which, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't see enough of, you know, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit has been 
to me has really been taken away by the reserve system where the idea is like, you know, stay on your reserve, don't try anything new, you know, live the way, uh, you know, your people lived 500 years ago, according to somebody else's history book. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Rose Paul, because uh, as you know, I've worked closely with Rose on some projects and uh, she still has a sheet of paper. She keeps locked in her, in her drawer that came from an Indian agent, I think back in the early sixties, uh, Trans Canada Highway had been had severed the reserve right down the middle, as you mentioned, two slices, north side, south side. And in that, the Indian agent said, no, you cannot have access to that land, but we will give you a little sliver, a little parcel where you can maybe sell some baskets and other Indian trinkets, mm. you know, almost verbatim. And to see what that community has done with only, you know, 450 on-reserve residents, you know, thanks to work of yourself and and other national organizations, it really is inspiring. Yeah, and but you know what? The, that attitude uh, still continues today, and I think the best example of that currently is Subaganegadi. So you know, Subaganegadi's uh, access to the fisheries, as per their rights under treaty, is really being diminished by the federal government to this. Here's a little plot to uh, sell your baskets by the road. When they become actual competitors in the market, all of a sudden everybody cries foul, and there's violence, and it's kind of ridiculous. So it's kind of like stay in your lane, sell your baskets, don't make a moderate livelihood by our standards, make the kind of moderate livelihood we think you First Nations people should make, you know, the beads and blankets. Well, that that's not good enough, right? Like, you know, they need the opportunity to become, you know, true competitors in, in the economy, you know, because in order to, you know, all we really want to do as First Nations people is match the quality of life of other Canadians. You know, so I, you know, I always have that conversation because people, I, you know, a lot of people are asking, well, what is a moderate livelihood? And I can only say to them, well, what is it to you? Like, you know, what, whatever your profession is, you know, and it's not that difficult. It's, you know, what is the average or so pay of somebody who does that kind of work? It's on payscale.com. Uh, however, there's always this like discount applied to First Nations, whether it's uh, misconceptions about our taxable status or tax exemptions, uh, or it's just this attitude of, well, you're a different culture from me, therefore you should make less money than me for the same work. You know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous that, the, that that's still talked about or thought about in 2020. Yeah, it's become an either or argument, you know, instead of everybody being able to equally share in the resources and benefits available, it's no, we have to have this slice, you have to have that slice, and it's just not going to work. No, yeah, and it's uh, and it's been ongoing, and there is still a lot of barriers, and I and I think one of the biggest barriers I think in policy uh, is this idea that uh, the reserve land still belongs to the queen, right? And uh, you know, I, I always get approached by my non-native friends and colleagues, and they're always asking me like, why do these chiefs always ask to speak to the queen? Well, because when they want to develop something, or if they want to take out a loan. They're told, well, you can't do that because the land belongs to the queen. So the bureaucrats at Indian Affairs are telling them, you can't do this without the queen's permission. And then everybody wonders why chiefs want to talk to the queen. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's right there in front of you. But people are never exposed to that world. Uh, but one of the biggest drawbacks is, you know, most small businesses are started with home equity loans. Well, on the reserve system, you can't have home equity because your home technically belongs to the queen. And you can't take out a home equity loan against the home you've been living in for 20 years without permission from Her Majesty. Well, again, you wonder why First Nations people want that, you know, direct relationship with the crown. It's exactly. because of those issues. 
that I, we could take the discussion off into the whole land code area, but maybe oh, that's yeah. <laughs> not, not my area of expertise. Just uh, yeah, get yeah. exposed to it a lot. So yeah, yeah, we'll get down there. Um, let's go back a couple of months to March, end of fiscal year is approaching, and I think mm-hmm. that was your timing to uh, launch your new business. Then the pandemic, yeah. the pandemic rears its ugly head. What did that do? Uh, well, it scared the living heck out of me, first of all, because I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, you know, I just started, uh, you know, the, this this business, Nation Fund, and uh, it was kind of reliant on the relationships that I had uh, developed over the years with First Nations. Uh, and I was really worried because I said, well, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to know if, uh, if I can get meetings, if I can talk to people, if I can even pitch them on the idea or make anything happen. Uh, it, it was very scary, but, but then, um, I'm kind of a bit of a silver lining type person, right? So I thought, okay, well, what, what is the benefit of this? And really, uh, what I found very quickly, something that would have potentially bankrupted me pretty early on was, uh, you know, I'm always traveling everywhere. So I'm having to pay for flights, having to pay for hotels, having to eat, you know, restaurant food, which, which I found out quickly, uh, is not that good for you over the long term. Um, but what I found is that being able to meet with first nations via zoom or Microsoft teams or whatever kind of video conferencing software, uh, was actually saving a lot of money on what me and my partners thought we'd have to spend, uh, in order to, uh, to kind of get the ball rolling. Um, so while it's, it's caused a lot of difficulties in terms of, uh, the ability to launch new projects and do new things, it's certainly opened up lines of communication, which I believe will continue, you know, uh, post pandemic where, you know, people will actually take a long, hard look at, do we need to do this in person or is this something we can do by teleconference or by, by uh, video call? So, so how do you, or what's the model you're using now to, to market your business, uh, to reach new prospects, sign deals with new clients? How do you go about doing that? Um, you know, actually, with the First Nations community in Canada is a pretty small place. So it's usually basically by word of mouth, like definitely the mocks and telegraph still alive and well and kind of supercharged in the Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat era, right? So people are kind of hearing about it. Um, as soon as I launched the business, uh, you know, I, I think first I started, I was still trying to set things up and develop the business plan. And I was getting calls right away, you know, from people saying, oh, hey, I heard you left the finance authority. What is it you're doing now? You know, people just curious, like, where did you go, you know, uh, and, and what are you doing? Um, so it really kind of started from there. And now what we're finding is that the few First Nations we work with, um, you know, if they start seeing uh, something very interesting happen, they will talk to other First Nations. So besides kind of the, you know, the website and all that, and I get, and then I get inundated on LinkedIn from like, hey, would you like to build up your leads or do your lead generation? So just out of a weird curiosity, I always say, well, you know, I work with First Nations in Canada, what do you guys have to reach that audience? You know, I'm just, and, and, you know, they're just kind of like, oh, well, you know, we can, uh, you know, change your website and uh, help you out craft emails. And I'm like, yeah, that's not very helpful at all. So yeah. help us uh, spam people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of it just kind of comes from, uh, you know, I, I, I know, quite a lot of people and uh you know I'm, I'm always curious about what they're doing they're always curious about what i'm doing so we're, we're trying to you know keep it very specific you know we want to do very specific types of projects uh filling in kind of the niche that you know doesn't exist uh so we look at major major projects so projects that where the capital expenditure is in excess of 100 million uh you know because there's really nothing set up for that there's there's certain numbers where once you hit them uh you know everybody goes silent 
And, uh, and, and that used to happen to me, you know, when it first started with the First Nations Finance Authority, I think the first loan they had out was for $10 million. Well, at that time, that was an insanely unimaginable amount of money. Like, that's the amount of money I hope to win in Lotto 649 one day, right? Um, so I, I really had a hard time with, you know, this new boss telling me, go talk to this chief and council and tell them we can lend them millions of dollars next week kind of thing right so and i'm thinking well we don't wait till april 1st we don't have to do anything like what what do we need permission from the queen like what do we got to do here right um so uh, it was actually one of the uh people who helped train me uh on bay street who, who i asked you know like well hey you guys deal with a lot of big numbers the millions and the billions you know how do you how do you deal with that and he just looked me straight in the eye and said you know what once you realize that money's not going into your bank account it's fine. It's just a number, you know, you might as well be talking about anything. So uh, to me, it feels like a real estate agent showing a really nice mansion. You know, it's never going to be my mansion, but I'll tell you all about it. Right. Like that's basically what working in finance is like. And that's what I do. So that reminds me of a deputy minister of finance uh, for the province of Nova Scotia. And I asked him once, I said, uh, Howard, how do you deal with the pressure of making sure that six or $7 billion budget is on? And he looked at me for a moment and said, Richard, it's only numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and, th and that's kind of the attitude. Now, for me, I guess there's a little bit more of a Robin Hood impact where I said, if I'm bringing this money into the Indigenous community, uh, because what we see in other other groups, like other cultural groups, Canada, the US, other countries, uh, you know, their economy is based on how much money circulates. So the more money you can introduce to the Indigenous community, uh, you know, we will all eventually benefit because socioeconomically, First Nations are pretty flat. You know, there's maybe a few very wealthy First Nations people out there. They usually keep to themselves and stay pretty quiet about their wealth. Uh, but the rest of us, you know, we kind of have just the uh, two groups, kind of those who are working. And when you work in the band office uh, or for an Indigenous organization, uh, there's an unspoken cap of how much you can actually make. Right. So usually people are still within the certain same kind of socioeconomic range of, of their peers, you know, uh, and we see this all the time. You know, chief and council, everybody thinks chiefs and councils make all this money. But, uh, you know, I think uh, in the corporate sector, most of their salaries would be considered pretty low, like very low. So, you know, it's it's very different. So I, I do feel like, you know. You bring in a project to a First Nation, they'll hire, you know, uh, you know, tradespeople and maybe project managers and stuff like that. And they're staying in the community. They're getting money. They're, you know, fixing up their homes. They're buying newer and better vehicles and that. And, and everybody seems to benefit a lot more than in other communities. Mm. I've been reading recently of a couple of big projects, uh, Alaska to Alberta Railway. There's a big multimedia or a film Company that may be built, I think, in Alberta, Malahat. Or, or no, Mal Columbia. yeah, Malahat Nation, and uh, yeah, Victoria. So I, I was actually just uh, having some preliminary discussions with them on that, just because I, I, I think it's such an innovative approach. You know, I think when people talk about First Nations development, they're always saying, well, you know, start up a convenience store, you know, or, or do something in agriculture or, or something like that, right? So they're really thinking very entry-level economic projects. Uh, they're not thinking about like Sawasan First Nation having an Amazon fulfillment center on the reserve. <laughs> you know, that, that's not what they're thinking. And and that's where you start to run into those issues like we did at Subanegadi, where they say like, you're, you know, you're flying too close to the sun here. You know, we're okay with 
with you guys taking the scraps and the crumbs. But if you go and do something very innovative, well, oh, that's going to be complicated. So, yeah, we, we, we have seen that. And uh, and I really believe that First Nations do need to be very involved in um, in, in infrastructure, uh, you know, such as, you know, rail and, and other things, you know, trans, well, electric transmission, electric generation. But they need to be in as equity owners. So there's still this attitude that's pervasive about, you know, being stakeholders or getting an impact benefit agreement. And to me, that's uh, the idea of having an impact benefit agreement only is still the very much the beads and blankets approach. It's like, you know, here's some shiny trinkets, give us your land and walk away, right? Um, equity owners are treated very differently. You have a seat at the boardroom table uh, and you also reap the, the the actual benefits of it. If somebody's willing to write you a check before they start doing what they want to do to make money, you better believe it's it's not very much. Like this is very early entry. So even in cases where they're, you know, nations are being offered, you know, half a million dollars a year for 20 years or something like that. Um, you know, you have to ask the questions, well, how much are you guys making when you do this? And let's talk percentage rather than dollar amounts. When you start talking in percentages, uh, it makes the math easier, which I like, <laughs> right? Uh, but then you know that you're you're playing on an equal playing field. And, and that's very important. When you look at the different sectors out there, uh, you know, the energy, uh, big tech, are there any that seem really promising to you that would solve some problems in various communities across the country? Uh, you know, and I'm talking to a lot of First Nations about uh, renewable energy and also about um, kind of local uh, food production. Uh, so one thing that they, you know, the, the uh, pandemic has taught us is that we cannot continue to rely on the big cities. Uh, most First Nations communities are located in rural or remote areas. Uh, and I think a lot of them learn the lesson that, you know, the tap can be shut off pretty quickly. So even if you do have some you know, level of industry and you're able to procure products from the city or from further south or wherever you happen to be, um, you can't always rely on that supply chain. So I think a lot of First Nations are seeing like we need to be able to produce a certain amount of our own power locally, you know, even if it's not powering everything, but we have some source of power just in case things go horribly wrong and we're able to produce some food. Um, so a lot of times, you know, First Nations uh, on reserve have been have a lot of people enclosed in a very small area. You know, when we talk about traditional territory, kind of the big reasoning for that, uh, I know in my community, is because, you know, certain seasons of the year, our hunters and gatherers would scatter over a massive land base. So you would never have like three or 4,000 people living in a certain site for any amount of time, like maybe over the summer for social gatherings or ceremonies and that. But very quickly, people would go out and harvest, uh, you know, all over the land. Um, so, you know, people are always kind of shocked, you know, when First Nations say, well, you know, our ancestors covered this area of like five or 6,000 square kilometers and say, oh, there's no way. Well, that's how, because we were broken up into small groups. Um, you know, I got to go out to the trap line when I was uh, very young, uh, you know, and, and that was, you know, kind of the basis of our, our lifestyle. You know, you spent a lot of time out of camp, whether it was a fishing camp or a fur camp or whatever it happened to be. Uh, you know, a lot of our people have like multiple sites or multiple homes, you know, and even to this day, like some of my relatives will build small cottages along their trap line and they travel to those areas throughout the seasons. Um, you know, and that's something that we do now we're all clustered together and, uh, you know, the opportunity for, you know, disease to spread and things like that, you know, is, is pretty big. So we do need to kind of be out on the land more, have a lot more land-based, uh, information, 
uh, especially around kind of, you know, wild food products, but also look at technology, you know, like how can we grow our own like fruits and vegetables locally, whether like indoor, you know, um, hydroponics or aquaponics or aquaculture, whatever it happens to be, we need to have a kind of an emergency food supply. And I am talking with a lot of, uh, you know, First Nations that are have very interesting ways of, of going about that. When you talk about being out on the land, it, it sparked a, a mental note about ecotourism. Indigenous tourism seems to be gathering some momentum. I mean, obviously, COVID has had an effect, but uh, I do know some communities here in, in Atlantic Canada are starting to think, okay, what can we do more to teach people more about our different cultures and also develop some economic spinoffs from that too? Uh, do you see some potential in that area? I do, because, you know, there's a lot of interest from, um, you know, other countries in the world and even from within Canada to learn more about uh, traditional Indigenous culture. Um, you know, it, it's it's very difficult because you kind of walk a, a bit of a fine line there. You know, there's a lot of sensitivities involved in there. Uh, and, and one thing we found, uh, you know, back in the 70s, you know, we started seeing a lot of um, kind of what you call cultural tourism, where people were wanting to come and meet some medicine man and learn about ceremonies and that. Well, next thing you know, they'd kind of make their own franchise and you'd have like a non-native person in the city masquerading as an indigenous shaman, right? Uh, and that really created this misinformation, right? So you got so to do it fairly cautiously. And and what you find a lot of times when you, when you do uh, anything around ecotourism is that people get there to come check it out and they... They, they they kind of present their mis- misinterpretations. So be like, oh, okay, I thought you guys would, you know, like raid another village or something or do something cool like that, like war kind of stuff, right? Because that's what I read about in these Karl May books, you know, from, you know, like that's what they're, what they're expecting. And, and I, as you find, uh, there, there's a bit of a fear there that, you know, like, you know, you get people paying a lot of money to come on some eco tour and, and then they're very disappointed because they're not being given the stereotype culture. They're being given the actual culture. Well, this is what we did for food and this is what we did for this. Right. And they're like, no, you know, they, they, they've got this Hollywood picture painted in their head, you know, of, uh, you know, doing doing things they see on TV, and it's it's kind of you know it, it makes it very complicated when you have to explain to them, you know, like oh, I think you're thinking of the uh, Northwest BC cultures. Uh, you know, we're Mi'kmaq over here. It's a little different. You know, and they're like, where's all your t- totem poles? You know, <laughs> we're just like, yeah. uh, no, we don't do that over here. But I know where you can find that if oh, yeah. next year. You know what I mean? I know some of my settler friends. They, they think there's you know. Aboriginal people or Indigenous peoples, they're all basically the same. I said, listen, do you know there are 634 First Nations communities? And let's not talk about, you know, Métis communities and non-status and urban versus rural. And that brings up, I guess, a point about culture. And I'll probably end with this. If you want to grab a sip of tea, I've been monopolizing this, (laughs) having my tea while you've been doing... Great you just look like you're enjoying it, really, too. So I'm so <laughs> jealous. <right? laughs> um, I want to ask you, just as we come to a close here, Frank, uh, you're also an author. Yes. Yeah. Tell us uh, about the book. Is it Gray Eyes? Is that yeah. Book? Yeah. I wrote the book Gray Eyes uh, back in 2015. And uh, I was one of the recipients uh, of the Birch Ward for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit literature. And, uh, you know, what happened there, and I always tell this to people, like the, the day you be, decide to become an author is the day you, you find out you can't find the book you really want to read. And so you decide to write it, you know. And that's kind of where I was because, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of research, um, you you know, on on First Nations cultures and that. But everything I was reading um, seemed to come from, you know, the time of contact or sometime after contact. 
And what I was really interested in is was pre-contact. So when I couldn't find that, I, I kind of set out first to just write kind of a, a children's book, um, you know, about uh, how our ancestors lived, you know, and, and they lived with their culture and their spirituality was, uh, you know, kind of a day to day piece of their existence. Uh, so I guess I started writing things down after the birth of my uh, my first son, uh, you know, because I travel a lot and you got to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, like, you know, car accidents happen, uh, you know, air travel is pretty safe, but not 100 percent. So I wanted to make sure I had something in case, you know, something, uh, I think it was because I got a life insurance policy around the same time. And maybe it was the, the insurance salesman who scared me into thinking I better write down some of what I think I know, uh, you know, in case I'm not there to share it with my, my children directly. So, so I wrote this story of a kind of a coming of age story uh, about a boy being born into my home community, uh, you know, um, pre-European contact, and he's born with special abilities. Uh, so he has gray eyes, and everybody knows that if you have gray eyes, it means you have these special uh, special abilities or special magic. And um, that that was uh, it. Started down a, a very interesting path where I was able to uh, you know write this uh, story, but I, I have uh, intended to make it a, a series. So I wanted to write one book for each of the seven teachings uh, so that, you know, people can, can learn it. Um, I got a very interesting response from it. I got, you know, kind of like, I guess you might say, like fan mail from all over the world, you know, uh, especially in kind of northern Europe. They, they seem to be very interested in my book and they're able to download it on their Kindle or wherever it is they're getting it and translate it and all that. Uh, so it was pretty interesting. But I, I also found it was like a lot of work. Like my wife uh, called it a very expensive hobby, you know, like uh, authors don't make a whole lot of money in Canada because the market is so small. Um, I always tell people, if you could write a best-selling novel every year in Canada, you might make five grand a year. You know, <laughs> that's that's the reality of it, right? There are and, only uh, so many Margaret Atwoods in the world. Yes, yeah, no, and that's, uh, you know, and it, it took uh, her a very long time to get there, you know, like, uh, you know, some of the stuff I've written, read by, you know, even authors when they write, on, like, on, on writing, uh, you know, even, like, uh, you know, people like Stephen King, like, toiled in obscurity for years before he became kind of mainstream successful. So, um, yeah, so I, I wrote that, uh, the book, and uh, then I, I kind of went through a process to try and distribute it. Um, probably the craziest thing I found uh, was I started contacting First Nation schools because I thought, like, hey, this would be a good book to, to write and uh, read in schools or do a book study, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm always a little bit annoyed by the teaching of, uh, you know, books like um, To Kill a Mockingbird where it's teaching people that racism only exists in the Southern United States, but never here in Canada. You know, we wouldn't have the exact same story here in Canada with First Nations. No, 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 no. Right. So, um, you know, what I found out very quickly is that the First Nation schools were funded about 40 percent less than uh, their kind of provincial school counterparts. And our provincial schools are, you know, really just <laughs> struggling to make ends meet as it is. So take a 40% haircut on that. Uh, I had one teacher in a First Nation school tell me, I've got a $500 a year budget to buy books. And basically all I do is replace the most tattered copies of To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> and that's basically all I can afford. Uh, so I actually did an online fundraiser. I think it was through uh, through GoFundMe. And we managed to donate, uh, you know, a couple thousand copies 
of um, you know of the book to First Nation schools and provide them with a teacher's guide. What so, a great idea! Is that still available? Did you, you went through Amazon? Probably did you? Oh, to- uh, that was part of it. No, no, we did it directly in partnership with our uh, with my publisher uh, Fernwood, okay. uh, which is uh, based just out of uh, Halifax. Um, and so they said like, okay, this is a good idea. So what they were able to let me do is kind of like to, to buy those books kind of at cost. Right. So they really, uh, they're really helpful in that way be able to say like, okay, well, normally this would be only for bookstores and whatever else, but since it's a charitable situation, uh, you know, that they, they're willing to help that way. So, um, I, I think what happened, uh, which kind of started to annoy my wife a little bit was the, uh, the shipping. So shipping books, cause they're very heavy, right? So you ship a set of 26 books to a remote first nation, uh, the shipping is going to cost you more than the books right? so so that was uh th- that kind of slowed it down a little bit right because uh, you know people are willing to pay to donate a book but eh, not so much to uh cover the cost of shipping right so in order exactly. to be effective yeah so we, we tried to keep that going for for as long as possible but then uh you know at the end of the day we said okay well you know uh, we're gonna have to let the market take over from here so well you're a you're a man of many skills frank i commend you uh, I try to be. It's uh, you know one of those situations where uh, you know sometimes you're worried. Am I am I doing any one job very well? Right. So you know I got to focus a little bit here. So that's that's kind of what uh, I've decided to do. No, I really appreciate the time. As we uh, as we close, first of all, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. I've learned lots. Uh, if people do want to get in touch with you, not the spammy type of folks, but folks legitimately, <laughs> legitimately, uh, legitimate people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in finance and uh, economic yeah. development, what's the best way for them to uh, check you out? Uh, the best way is to go to uh, our website, uh, www.nationfund.ca. Uh, so there's like a contact us form uh, and, and that, uh, you know, contact us information uh, comes directly to my email. So I, I have a look at that. Uh, we're not quite big enough yet to uh, get me, uh, you know, an administrative assistant person, but we might be looking into that very shortly. Uh, but I'll, I'll take a look at that and then I'll send it to one of our, uh, you know, one of our people that would best fit that particular request. Fantastic. Thanks again, and hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a great 2021. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And before we go, just a reminder that you can subscribe to Indigitech in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can also leave a review at podchasers.com. Look for Indigitech. And by leaving a comment, it certainly helps others find the show. And if you know an Indigenous business owner who I should have on the podcast, email me at podcast at richardperry.ca. Thanks again for listening.